0: Good to see you all, uh, we're going to turn to uh, Revelation chapter 5, if you go ahead and open your Bible up to Revelation 5, and while you're turning there, I just want to say how much of a blast it has been to get to be with you all. Um, I love you guys, and isn't it an amazing thing how you discover wherever you go in different ways, you meet strangers, and you find out you're all in the kingdom, and instantly It's family. And I just once again, I don't know why after all these years of being a Christian, it's like it happened again. Like they, everything feels like family. So singing with you, fellowshipping with you, enjoying meals with you, feeding on the word together with you. W- weren't this morning sessions just amazing? Yeah. So, so good. My hand was flying. Uh, my heart was burning. It was just an, an awesome, awesome morning. So I'm I'm leaving tomorrow morning, hopping on a plane, and I am just deeply edified by you brothers and sisters and just want to cheer. I'll be cheering you on from Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I told you last night, kind of just showed my hand where I wanted to go with last night's session and tonight's session, and here's how they fit together. Glory in the church, last night from Psalm 48, and the church in glory, Revelation chapter 5. So if you would Give your attention, please, to the reading of God's word. I'm going to read this whole chapter to us. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, "Who?" is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals, but no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. I wept and wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, look. The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the midst of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He went and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered And you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered To receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea. And everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power. Be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's pray. Oh God, I feel myself to be standing on holy ground. This most reverence charged moment in human history. And I pray that you would fill our hearts with a sense of the glory of who you are and that that would motivate us to live on mission and spread your fame to the ends of the earth. We pray in the name and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Do you ever feel wonder? So I remember a story that my mom told me from a few years back. It was about my grandpa, her, her dad, papa, and how he always, in his life, he he wanted to go to the Grand Canyon and he wasn't able to go to the Grand Canyon until late in his life and she was there with him and she described the moment when he stood there looking out over the Grand Canyon and she said, there he was just silent and reverent and the next thing she said, my daddy did, was sing. He sang, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made I see the stars I hear the rolling thunder thy power throughout the universe displayed and just with his big deep baritone voice he just sang over the grand canyon to the glory of God do you ever feel wonder you can see it sometimes unadulterated wonder in the eyes of a child right, on Christmas morning, and they come out from their bedrooms, and they're wiping the sleepy seeds out of their eyes, and they come out, and they see the presents underneath the tree, and literally, when they're young, right, their mouths just, they gape, their mouths actually hang open. It's the experience I had the very first time as a child, I went to Baskin-Robbins, because, because growing up in the '80s, we didn't have blue bell ice cream. That had, you know, the, the, the craziest thing you could get is Neapolitan ice cream. It's like three different ice creams in one. You just, your head explodes, right? And then you go to Baskin Robbins, and you just look through that glass as a child, just looking down into uh, heaven. Really, it just, it's like, and it was the first time I'd ever heard of Jamocha almond fudge. It changed my life, right? Mint, mint chocolate chip, right? These are. Just wondrous things. You, you see it as a child. I remember um, where we lived. So in, in New Orleans, there was a really famous business owner named Al Copeland. And he was the founder of Popeye's. And he was the founder of Copeland's Restaurant. And everybody knew where he lived. He lived on Falls Drive. And everybody knew where he lived because we all drove there during the season of Christmas. Because he had 250,000 lights in his front yard. And this is in the 80s. He had... He had reindeer with animatronic legs in the 1980s. And I remember my dad, he would just say, load up, we're going to Copeland's house. And we'd hop in the car in the station wagon with the wood panel on the sides, right? And we'd drive over to Falls Drive, we'd get out of the car, and I would just mouth hanging open looking at those reindeer legs, right? Just pure wonder. And it's so effective. I was even thinking about it this week. So here I am. That's what wonder does. You know, it's 40 years later and I'm geeking out with you about what happened when I was five years old, what I saw through my eyes when I was five years old. That's what wonder does. Wonder is is contagious like that, right? When the Holy Spirit wires Revelation 5 up to the heart of the believer, what happens next is something we call wonder it it is it issues forth in this reflexive instinctive response which is worship <laughs> and worship issues in this reflexive response which is mission worship always leads to mission Worship is the fuel of mission, and worship is the goal of mission. So worship leads to mission, and then mission leads to more worship, and then worship leads to more mission. As long as we're here in this earth, our worship toward God is going to lead us to the nations to say, Have you seen him? Have you seen this? Your mouth needs to hang open the way ours has. You have to see the glory of this one, this Christ, this glorious God. The essence of the Christian life, friends, and we heard this yesterday morning, my my brother's fine message on Isaiah 6, so the main idea of which is just this, that the whole of the Christian life is driven by what we behold. Everything in the Christian life is downstream of beholding the glory of God. It's not a purpose-driven life, it's a glory-driven life. We see him. So what explains Isaiah saying, I'll go. And God tells him, hey, by the way, just so you know, full disclosure, they're not going to listen. Their forehead is going to be like iron. I promise you, it's going to be frustrating. And he's like, listen, just tell me where. And the reason for that isn't that he read a book on evangelism. It's not that he took a missions class at seminary. What happened to Isaiah that said, just tell me where, literally, name the place. What happened? He saw the Lord. It's beholding driven. It's glory driven. We see glory and the rest is history. Second Corinthians 3:18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory. To another. You're not gonna, we're hearing the the message this morning on holiness. You're not gonna live a holy life if you haven't seen the Holy One. It's glory driven, it's beholding driven. You won't advance the glory of Christ in the world if you haven't seen the glory of Christ. So, as we look at this passage, we're gonna see, I hope, I pray, three realities that motivate us to worship and mission three realities that motivate us to exalt God's glory and proclaim God's glory among the nations. And the first reality is this, a sovereign God. So what we see here in our text is a sovereign God. Friends, our God is sovereign over all. And that truth is a truth that has sustained God's people all throughout the centuries. That truth is the one that has emboldened the church of God in witness. Look, there are precisely situations in the Old Testament and the New Testament where the sovereignty of God shows up in order to give consolation and motivation and boldness to God's people. When God brings up sovereignty, he says, I'm trying to move you in this direction, and I want you to trust me. So, for example, when does sovereignty come up? It makes... It's no surprise to us that it comes up in books like Daniel, books like Ezekiel. The people of God are exiles. The people of God are hopeless. The people of God are powerless. And he says, I want you to know right now in the midst of this, I'm in charge. I'm still on my throne. It shows up in books like the book of Psalms. The dominant genre of the psalms. There are more psalms of lament than any other psalm. Which means there are more psalms that sound like people crying. Sound like people desperate. Than any other type of psalm. And so often in the psalms it's telling us the Lord is on high. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. He is belted with strength. Yes, the floods lift up their voice, but mightier than the floods, mightier than the sounds of many waters, the Lord on high is mighty, Psalm 93. The sovereignty of God, the doctrine of sovereignty of God shows up in the book of Acts chapter four. The apostles have just been beaten half to death. They've been imprisoned. They've been released. And they go and they gather with the church and the church prays for boldness. And what's the very first words of the church's prayer for boldness? Quote, sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, and it goes on from there. But you see what they're doing. They're riffing on this glorious truth that God reveals about his sovereignty. And here in our text, look at verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, sealed with seven Seals This scroll, friends, contains all of God's purposes for the future, including the final salvation of his people, the putting down of evil once and for all, and the consummation of God's kingdom. <laughs> this scroll is a, to say it's a big deal is the understatement of all time. <laughs> this is a massive thing, right? The first verse of this text essentially tells us he's got the whole world in his hands he's got the wind and the rain in his hands he's got you and me brother you and me sister in his hands the, the destiny of the world the destiny of all the peoples and all the nations and all the kings and all the kingdoms rests in the secure omnipotent hand of the God who is sovereign Think about it with me. Here's some texts from Scripture, just a sampling of texts from Scripture, beginning with Psalm 135, verse 6. It says this The Lord does whatever He pleases in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. I am God and there is no one like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsels shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Daniel 4.35 All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him what have you done? <laughs> There's something about just reading scripture, isn't there? <laughs> Second Chronicles 20, verse 6. O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. Really, this message, we've already sung it in worship. I'm so thankful for the the worship team just discerning tonight. Because while I'm singing the songs, I'm like, that's the sermon. (laughs) You have no rivals. You have no equals. Yours is the name above all names. Yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Glorious truths that sustain the church. How much, you think about this, how much of our worry and anxiety is owing to the fact that we have a small view of God and, ironically, a comparatively large view of ourselves? There's a book that was written many years ago by a counselor named Ed Welch. And it was on the subject of the fear of man. And I love the title of the book because the title of the book on the subject of the fear of man is when people are big and God is small. God is in charge. God runs the world. (laughs) I love how uh, the late pastor J. Vernon McGee helps us accurately size ourselves. He says this, this is God's universe and God does things his way. You may have a better way but you don't have a universe. <laughs> so, isn't that so often the way that God speaks to his people, especially through the prophets in the Old Testament? He says, okay, so look, let me resize your world because why you got Egypt this big and you got me this big? Why do you have yourselves this big or your king this big and you got me this big? We got to resize everything. We got to make all the sizes accurate. So Egypt is this. You are this, and I am this. He says it so often. Have you not seen, Isaiah? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he is the one who gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Who increases strength? The maker of the cosmos. (laughs) Yes. J.I. Packer, he says, and this has a little edge on it. This has a stinger on it, so get ready. Most of us are miniature Christians because we serve a miniature God. Friends, God is not small. God is not wrestling with Satan for the steering wheel of history. They are not up there in the front seat in a slap fight to see who works it out, right? And so for a while, Satan has pulled it this way and then God grabs the wheel and pulls it this way. That is not some dualistic universe. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. God could do whatever he wants. God is in charge. God is sovereign. God is in charge of the destiny of the nations. Look, this is called destiny church. It would be hard to call it destiny church if the destiny of the world is up for grabs. You'd have to say Destiny Church with a question mark after it. Right? Destiny Church, you all right? It's a kind of a hypothesis. Destiny, maybe. Our culture isn't particularly warm and fuzzy about God being sovereign. God being loving, yes, all day. God being merciful, yeah, more and more. Bring the mercy, bring the mercy. Sovereignty, not interested. Kingship, not interested. Lordship, him in charge, no. Judgment, no. Several years ago, I came across an article announcing a new sort of holiday. And the article began this way, quote, Ready for a day to honor blasphemy? According to press reports, September 30th is set as the observance of the first ever International Blasphemy Day. It goes on to talk about one of the exhibits on display describing it this way, and I quote, You've never seen Jesus like this before, dripping red nail polish around the nails in his feet and hands. An irreverent riff on the crucifixion wounds. The provocative title of the painting, Jesus Does His Nails. Article goes on, Among other things, they planned a blasphemy contest in which participants are invited to submit phrases, poems, or statements that would be or have been considered blasphemous. Winners are to receive a t-shirt and a mug. Friends, there is coming a day when the whole world will meet the sovereign God. And, and there will be no heckling. There will be Not one wisecrack. Nobody will be too busy to notice. Everything will stop. He tears through the eastern skies. God will be utterly unignorable on that day. The late and great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, he, he talks about the difference between the first advent and the second advent Christ coming in a lowly manger and him coming in glory he writes these words he will be the same this when he comes again he will be the same yet oh how changed where now the carpenter's smock royalty hath now assumed its purple where now the toil-worn feet that needed to be washed they are sandaled with light Where now the cry, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I, the son of man, have no place to lay my head. Heaven is his throne. Earth is his footstool. Ah, who would think to recognize in the weary man full of woes the king eternal, immortal, invisible. He is the same, but yet how changed. You that despised him, will you despise him now? Our God... Charts the course of history. He raises up kings. He brings them down. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it like the waters wherever he wants to turn it. He calls the stars by name. He commands the winds and the rain, the snow and the hail. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from his will. This is our God. Worship him Or if you don't, don't worship him at your eternal peril. You reckon with him on his terms or you perish. This is our God. This is our king. He is the sovereign over all the earth. And when he gives the word, every knee bows. And I love how the Apostle Paul in that great Christ hymn in Philippians 2, he goes on to itemize what every knee means. Every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, and every knee under the earth. Satan will be on bended knee, acknowledging through his teeth the glory of the one who claims the name above all names. Mm. Every knee will bow. Listen, listen, this is good news, right? This God who is sovereign over history, who is the judge of all the earth, this God, this is the wonder. He opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. God's favorite thing, just so we're all clear, God's favorite thing isn't judgment. His favorite thing is salvation. (laughs) So Jesus said, The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's why Martin Luther would famously say, judgment is what God does with his left hand. With his right hand, he saves. And he's (laughs) right-handed. He's right-handed. He loves to save. The sovereignty of God at the end of the day is only terrifying to those who insist on self-rule. Which means this. If you run to Christ, the one Savior, the sovereignty of God becomes the warmest blanket you could possibly wrap around your trembling soul. Because the one who died for you and the one who loves you has the power to keep you has the power to guard you. As we heard this morning, has the power to present you faultless before the throne. There's tension in our passage. Because right after we see the right hand of the sovereign God, the next sound we hear is John weeping. So the second point is this, a sad world. A sovereign God In a sad world, John is weeping there in verse 3 because you see those words, no one in heaven or earth or under the earth can open the scroll. So just think about that with me. We already talked a little bit about what the scroll is, so just let's develop the implications of that. If the contents of that scroll announces, and doesn't just announce the end of history, it throws the last latch It secures, it throws into motion a new chapter for God's people, a chapter marked by righteousness and peace and joy in the forever kingdom of God and the new creation. It makes sense, right? If that's what the scroll does and we can't get the scroll open, it makes sense that John is weeping. Because that means just sadness. That means we're locked inside in this broken, fallen, sad, tortured world. You think about it. You read through the Bible, and the Bible is full of weeping. It is a book of sorrows from Genesis 3 on. From Genesis 3 on, the world is wallpapered in sorrow and suffering and sin. Hannah weeps because she's childless. Tamar weeps because she's been violated and no one comes to her defense. Martha weeps because her brother has died. Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Peter weeps over his failure. Every moment since Genesis 3, the rebellion of our first parents written on the walls of our lives are two words. Sin. And suffering. And there seems to be no end of it. No end of sin. No end of suffering. And so we still weep. In continuity with the weeping of the Bible, we still weep here in 2022. I read an article a couple years ago about things that were going on in Venezuela at the time. An unemployed single mother who couldn't feed her children. She had four children. And given the economic crisis, she said, I'm not going to be able to feed my children. My children are going to starve. The heading of the article, she said this, I feel like my heart is breaking. The day I read that article, I also happened to read another article that just simply opened with these words, Yemen is burning. It's called by some experts the most urgent humanitarian crisis in the world today. Two million people displaced. 22 million people in need of assistance, 8 million at the risk of famine. And I read those two articles about the same time, and I wrote in my journal, a world weeping. Even this last month, I find myself right there in Birmingham. This is not just abroad and elsewhere in the world. It's right here in our own world. I'm in Birmingham, and I'm driving down. There's holiday traffic down Highway 280. There's lots of red lights on our way, and everybody's shopping that day. And so I'm trying to get over so that I can get in the left lane and turn at the next turn or a few turns down. And so I turn my left blinker on, and I see a woman in an SUV behind me, and she kind of gives me space to come on in. And as I pulled into the lane in front of her, I went to say thank you, and I looked in my rearview mirror, and I saw her bawling. I mean bawling bawling and because it was holiday traffic and we had light after light i turned the music off and there we just moving through traffic so slowly and i just watched this woman cry and eventually a few minutes up ahead i had to turn left and i saw her go ahead and drive forward down highway 280 and the thought that was on my mind was just simply this what happened to you why are you weeping? What, ha- what fell apart in your world? You, you live in this world long enough and questions assault your mind on a regular basis. And, and I think the fundamental question is something like this. When will it be over? When is enough enough? When will the sadness end, this grief, right? This dogged our existence since Genesis chapter three. When will it ever let up? And Jesus Christ enters this text at the breaking point of hopelessness. This is why we sing at the Advent season, long lay the world in sin and error pining until he appeared. Look at verse 4. Jesus enters the text at the breaking point. I wept and wept. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then, that's the best word in this whole text. Then, one of the elders said, do not weep. What am I going to do instead of weep? Look. Don't weep. Look. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Someone is coming who will bring sin and Satan and suffering to an end. This is the glorious, blessed hope. Of the church, he will wipe away every tear. All the pain that we knew in this world will be outweighed a thousand times over by joy. (laughs) Joy so full that it leads all who are in Christ to do the same thing, which leads to our final truth, a sovereign God, a sad world, and a song of worship. In Revelation 5, So there's this glorious vision of a glorious future and it's sealed up in a scroll and inside that scroll is a world with no weeping so that's inside if we can get inside there's a world with no weeping inside the scroll there's a world redeemed there's a world scrubbed of all evil and sickness and death and oppression and the question we should be asking is who's going to pay for that world we don't deserve that world we've fallen we've rebelled what we deserve is Hell, who's going to pay for joy? Who's going to pay for me to have a seat in the stadium of God's glory? It's got to be paid for. Jesus pays the debt. He pays the debt. Who has the power? Who has the heft? Who has the gravitas to bring history to its climactic end? And here into the text comes a lamb like a lion or a lion like a lamb. John is reaching for words. In other words, he's seeing that it bears the marks of having suffered, but it bears the comportment of royalty, the the dignity of kingship. And he went in verse 7 and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. Look, that is either the height of audacity or the definition of awesome. (laughs) The lamb goes and says, Father, give me the scroll. (laughs) Give me the scroll nobody could open. Hand me the scroll. (laughs) Christ alone, our Lord, is authorized to say enough to the sin and suffering we've known in this world. That's why Isaac Watts, his hymn, Joy to the World, is not actually about the first advent. It's about the second advent. Jesus Christ alone is authorized to say, no more let sin and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. I've come now to make my blessings flow as far as the curse is found. Jesus says enough. He says enough to sin. He says enough to the grave. He says enough to Satan's lies and accusations. The one who bought us with his blood is the very one who will wipe away every tear. How glorious is this awesome, sovereign savior. One glimpse of his beauty will extinguish a thousand sorrows that have vexed us in this this world. You know, I, I read our passage and the word that sticks in my head is just the word we began with. Wonder. You feel wonder? Why do we engage in global missions? Why are we so passionate about global missions? We want the world to hear God's magnum opus in Christ, his greatest symphony. The music of redemption is not heard in every place in the world right now. And what we're saying is we heard it You've got to hear this. You've got to hear this music. We want our wow to be heard around the world. I had the privilege. So my family prays for unreached people groups. Our church prays for unreached people groups on a regular basis. We send missionaries, particularly to places in the 1040 window where there's no gospel gospel work that's being done in some of these places there's no church that exists in some of these places and one of the places that we've prayed for people groups that we've prayed for for many years is a people group called the Hui in China millions and millions of Muslim people who the overwhelming majority have never heard the name of Jesus my son and I when he was a senior he got to take a trip our senior trip gets to go to China and we go to East Asia and we live among and live with and share homes with the Hui people. And um, my very first conversation with an actual Hui man, we're walking down a path just this beautiful place in, in East Asia. And it uh, looks like Jurassic Park around us. We're just walking through this park and I began to talk to him through a translator and I asked him about his religion, what his beliefs were, to tell me about your upbringing. And, and he told me about what he was taught in school was atheism, and what he was taught at home was Islam. And I said, Have you heard of Christianity? He said, I've heard the term Christian through the translator. And I said, So here's the story of Christianity. Maybe you've heard it, maybe you haven't, but here's my faith, and it's brought hope and joy into my life. Can I tell you about it? And he said, Yeah, I'll tell you. can tell me about it. And through the translator I told him about what Jesus has done and why he came into the world and that he died on the cross and then I told him he rose again on the third day and he interrupted me through the translator and he said, rose again? He had never heard of the resurrection of the Son of God. Approximately two billion people in the world at this moment who have never heard the music. The very songs that we were Singing, they have no idea what that's about, and for us, the church, that's not okay. That's not okay. They don't know Jesus is the one mediator between heaven and earth because the one mission hasn't found them yet, hasn't reached them yet. Matthew twenty four fourteen. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. It's not a hypothesis will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. If we hypothesize about whether, ah, maybe the nations already have heard, why are we right to assume that the nations haven't already heard? Because he's not here. When the nations have heard, he'll be here. So the work must continue because he's not here. The nations haven't sufficiently all heard. So, what's it going to take for the nations to hear? It's going to take everything. It's going to take a willingness of people in our churches, maybe some of us, to say, just tell me where. It might be the hardest to reach place in the world. Just name the place. You're the Lord. I've seen your glory. Tell me where. David Livingston, the missionary to Africa in the 1800s, said it best: "If a commission by an earthly king is considered an honor, how can a commission by a heavenly king be considered a sacrifice?" Wow. Friends, we talk about in our church all the time, three words: Pray, give and go. Our praying and our giving and our going is not a sacrifice. it's a privilege. It's let's turn on the music in the rest of the world. The mission isn't guilt-driven. I'm not trying to guilt our congregation to the nations. It's wonder-driven. It's wow-driven. If we're not living with a passion for the mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, the problem isn't that we have to talk more about evangelism necessarily. The problem is higher up. right? Follow it all the way back to the fountainhead. We haven't seen if we've seen, but what did Paul say? He said, the love of Christ compels us. Yes. If We've seen Christ's love. We got to go. We got to tell people. And if they've not heard it, we got to get there. <laughs> we got to get there. If our eyes have been opened to see the glory of the one mediator, we cannot help but pursue the one mission. More simply, people who have seen the glory of Christ live for the mission of Christ. Let's pray. God, even tonight, I'm in a church that loves the cause of missions in the world, and I'm so thankful. It's impacted my own life. And tonight, I, I, I feel like I'm among friends. I feel like I'm home. These people want the world to hear the music of redemption. And I'm so thankful that that passion is all around this room. I pray that it would be everywhere we go, that passion would run with us. That you would affect every member in our church. The next generation would catch a glimpse of your glory and want to make it known in all the earth. That our praying would be ratcheted up. Our giving would be ratcheted up. Our going, we would present ourselves as available to you. Blank check. You write the check. Lord, you tell us how we can live fully for your glory. Thank you that I am among friends and that you have put this passion in our hearts. I pray you would only multiply it, amplify it, spread it, church after church, place after place, and then, Lord, swing your sickle in the furthest reaches of the world and reap a harvest that gets glory for the Lamb who died that gets glory for the one who purchased us, a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. What a day that will be. May we hasten the day as we proclaim this gospel with joy in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God.